The Last Duel is a wannabe Me Too movie, the cavalier abusive experience at six centuries removed. That's Richard Brody of New Yorker. Rather tantalizing look at the new film, The Last Duel. That's right. Ben Affleck and Matt Damon reunited, not just on screen, but also screenwriters. Nicole Holofcener also wrote the script with them. Ridley Scott's directing it. You got Adam Driver, so plenty of stars in that new film. That is our new movie. Also, as far as our old movie is concerned, the great Amin Al-Hassan, make sure you check out his podcast, Cinephobe. He joins us to talk about Teen Wolf, directed by Rod Daniel and written by Jeff Loeb and Matthew Weissman, of course, starring that Canadian icon, Michael J. Fox. Amin has some hot takes on Teen Wolf that you will... I mean, if you ever watch the movie again, you won't be able to not think about this. And as far as our wild card, Jason Hare, a terrific director, of course, did The Last Dance, did Andre the Giant. He's got a new film on Netflix right now, all about space. If you're into astronomy and astronauts like William Shatner right now, 90 years old, going to the moon, you're going to love it. Also, I was on the Levitard show last week, and in the midst of talking baseball and movies, they mentioned that Tom Cruise is at a baseball game, looking very bloated. And I said I was offended by the fact that they say, look at Norm MacDonald, which is an insult, of course, to the great late comedian comic. And then I started going off on Tom Cruise, which, again, new audience, I get, they were not aware of my disdain for Tom Cruise. So Levitard asked me, can you rip on him on your next episode? I said, of Look at so. you, you're like a jukebox. Well, well, now at the point, like, this is episode 195, and last week you said to me, have you done Forrest Gump? So, like, I'm now at the greatest hit phase <laughs> of my career. I'm like Bob Seger. I'm like, okay. Oh, wow. I'm you just should rip put out an album. Again. I'll rip put on out, Tom like, Cruise. an album. Yeah. I just can't wait. Like, what kind of guest are we going to get for episode 200? I mean, we're, we're five more episodes away, so I hope these guest bookers are, I'm sure they're aware of it, they're working night and day on this, so we're going to have we're going to have somebody named Robert De Niro. I don't know if it's going to be the Robert De Niro, but we're going to have a Robert De Niro for sure. We may try to get M. Night Shyamalan. If not, we'll get Bibble. So either way, we're going to have a big name director here on Cinephile. As always, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. Please do support the podcast. Thanks to Chris Whittingham, who was terrific last week, although he did give that spoiler. I mean, I, and in hindsight, I really should have put up the, the stop sign on him there. I was like Ron Washington just waiting <laughs> And I'm like, afterwards, I'm like, you, you got you to like give it at least two to three weeks before you give any spoilers. But what do you, I mean, he's such a nice guy. And I just, you know, I'm the host. Right? I, I just love the visual of you coaching third base and someone about to telling a story. And you're like, keep going, keep going, keep going. <laughs> oh. I couldn't give him the stuff. So I wanted that run to score. Uh, but anyways, thanks to Witty. And thanks to Jason Isaacs. I mean, uh, Claire texted me. She goes, oh my God, Jason what a Isaac's delight. funny. What a delight. Oh, yeah. Like, legit. Funny guy. Yeah, very delightful. Uh, let's get into The Last Duel. Before we talk about the film, which is about King Charles VI declaring that Knight Jean de Carouge settle his dispute with his squire by challenging him to a duel, I just want to talk about medieval times in general. Because i got to tell you, Cody, I I'm watching this movie. I just watched The Madness of King George, as you know. And there's a certain element of it that feels fantastical and maybe a little bit romantic. Imagine if you and I were knights back in the day. But I have a lot of issues with it. I mean, just the, the indoor plumbing, yeah. obviously, is a major one. Just how heavy the metal is. You're constantly walking around with swords. Everyone looks dirty. Like the teeth of the Jousting seems issues. cool, though. I, I, yeah, but I think, but I'll tell you what I love about it. The countryside, I mean, that greenery is great. Having a castle mm -hmm. is amazing. And I, here's the big thing for me. I don't know if you like mow your lawn or, you know, a summer day you read mm -hmm. a book or something. It gets pretty hot in Miami. I get that. But like, I like when your work is done, you just admire oh, the scenery. I, I, just, I, just, I just wish I had a moat. Right? Imagine if I had a moat. Ah, I'd love a moat. Like, what are you doing? I'm just checking good out my call. moat. Here's my drawbridge. I got a couple surfs I'm putting to work. Like, I think that aspect of it, I do like the idea of the castle on the big four corners. I mean, I, 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 yeah, I mean, who wouldn't love a, a moat? I'm with you on that. But I'm, I'm, I'm going back to jousting, though. I love instead of getting into a debate with my friend, instead of texting, you know, a long argument, we just say, let's go settle this out with the, you know, let's go joust. And whoever wins, like, that's the winner of the argument. <laughs> Having a verbal joust is always better than a physical joust. But you're right. Either one is good. As long as you're jousting. Have you ever you been to medieval good. times in Orlando? It's like the... I'm glad you mentioned this. So there's one in Toronto. There's one in most major cities. I've never been to one, and I'd love to go. It just reminds me of Cable Guy. I've seen Cable Guy, and ever since then, I'm like, I kind of want that creepy experience. Well, so the, the best part of it is you can just call the waitress a wench. And I'm like, what? They go, you have yes. to like, so, okay, get over here, wench. I go, how is that the best part of the experience? I was hoping it would be the job. That is <laughs> an odd thing to be the best part. Uh, I bet that's changed. Yeah, yeah. I would bet In that fairness, you're, not, you're not allowed to be 20 years ago. I don't think you can now call women wenches <laughs> at medieval times, okay? You definitely can't in society. Right. You probably can't even at medieval times. As far as the movie is concerned, <laughs> this does mark a reunion for Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, who famously rose to prominence with Goodwill Hunting, a script that they wrote together. Those two guys, along with Nicole Holofcen, who wrote the script of them originally on Fallon. And Affleck has told the story. He goes, listen, the reason why we made this movie, Goodwill Hunting, was at that time of all these independent films being made, you said, okay, let's write this ourselves, 
uh, let's put it like in one set, so it's not very expensive, and let's get one big star, and we should be able to make a movie. So they set it within the confines of this guy, Matt Damon, playing a janitor at the school. We'll get one big star, which is Robin Williams. He won an Academy Award. They won an Academy Award. And they're like, it was amazing. We actually followed the formula, and it worked out to us. Since then, they have not written any scripts. And Affleck said, honestly, it's just a lot of work. And Damon's like, you know, when you show up as a star, you learn the lines. So actually, write the script takes a lot of effort. But they had this concept for this story about these two knights dueling, but also a female perspective. So Nicole Hollis Center, who's an excellent independent film director, she's awesome. Affleck, is, you know, she's one of my favorite writers. He reaches out to her, hey, do you want to help with me and Damon and write the script together? And, and lo and behold, you have this idea. Uh, she did enough said, was a great James Gandolfi, uh, Julie Louis-Dreyfus movie. So the first thing you need to know is this. The film Rashomon comes to mind. Rashomon is one of the great films of all time. Akira Kurosawa, my favorite directors, came out in 51, 54, something like that. But it's about one event, and it's told from four different perspectives. So it's told from the, you know, the bad guys, so to speak, the good girl, the heroine, etc. And that's how the movie is called. It is such a famous film, even The Simpsons one time referenced Rashomon, and Homer says that's not how I remember it, which is a reference to the fact the story is told from four different points of view. So The Last Duel is a story in which the first section is Matt Damon's character's point of view. The second section of the movie is Adam Driver's point of view, and the third section is Jodie Comer's point of view, whose name I did not mention off the top when I mentioned all those stars, but I'm aware of the fact she's in Killing Eve, people love her, and let's be honest, she walks away with the movie. I mean, the whole movie is very good, but Jodie Comer's section is the best. So the first section, you have Damon telling the story of being this noble knight, something happens to his wife, he, he therefore wants to challenge Adam Driver because he's, you know, important that he uh, stands up for her and stands up for himself and her honor. The Saxon section, you feel like Driver's definitely the villain, but in his version, you're like, okay, he's a little bit more sympathetic or has some undertoes to it. And Ben Affleck, who is clearly having a great time just playing a, a version of another villain who's just basically relishing the experience. One scene, Driver comes to his place. He's got four women just... just just, you know, going at it. And he's like, oh, what are you bothering me this for? And afterwards, once he, once he deals with his business, he goes, all right, take off your pants. Let's go to work. So Affa clearly had a good time on set. And then the third section is Jodie Comer and what exactly happens to her. So I thought it was a, a unique storytelling device. Again, this owes a large part to a Japanese director from 70 years ago, but for new audiences, it's kind of a cool way to tell the story. I like the fact that they did include a female in telling this perspective. And as that blurb mentioned, Cody, you know, when I hear the last duel, you go, okay, it's gonna be this big masculine story, a couple of knights going at it, super violent, aggressive, macho. And instead, it ends up being a little bit more of a feminine picture because of Jodie Comer's character and her perspective on what happens. So I think it's very unique as a marketing marketing tool. I imagine young men are going to go see this because they want to see the action. I'm sure they like Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, but I think walking out of it, it's actually a better date movie than you might think because men and women will have a different perspective on it. As you know, I panned scenes of a marriage because I said, who the hell would want to watch that? But this is the rare film that I think you watch and go, okay, I'm curious what the male perspective is and I'm curious what the female perspective is. I'm giving this one three Maple Leafs, obviously very capably directed by Ridley Scott, who knows this terrain well, having won an Oscar previously with Gladiator. Yeah, I'm intrigued, but I like movies that just tell the story in a unique way. And like you said it, it's it's taking a great director and recreating what they did but still i just love the idea of that and the idea of getting that female perspective in a time when you know women were probably treated poorly and stuff like that like kind of like it'd be you know i, I just think that that's like a, a cool way to do it as like usually in this time period you're expecting women to you know get treated poorly and in this one you actually get to see it from their vantage point a hundred percent. That's the thing. At that time, they were subservient. They did not have a voice. It's almost like you're giving a voice to the voiceless now. So it's a little bit of revisionist history. Sometimes when you hear that phrase, you feel like it's negative. But I think in this sense, it's positive to see some revisionist history and see how females were treated back then and how different perspectives are always important. So I definitely encourage people to check out uh, The Last Duel. It's currently in theaters. I mean, Adam Driver. I mean, Adam Driver's just having a moment uh, right that's now. That's Dan Stancic's line from last year. Adam Driver having a moment between Marriage Story, SNL, um, this guy, and here's the thing, Cody, let's be honest. When I see him, if you saw Adam Driver walking in the street, that does not scream movie star. Like, Ben Affleck is a very handsome guy. I think Matt Damon is good-looking. He's charismatic. You see Adam Driver, and his features are just overgrown. Giant nose, big ears, giant hair, but terrific actor. Like, like serious, intense. First of all, people love tall. Like, height height sells. And, like, I'm telling you. And, like, he's got this, like, Pete Davidson. Like, he's kind of just, like, interesting-looking. Yeah. And like that's that can be an attractive feature. Like you know, he's you're right. He's not stereotypically beautiful, but he's like I, I dig it. I dig I dig Adam Driver. I dig what he's giving. He's not conventionally handsome, 
but you think he's got a charisma too. I do agree that he definitely has a bad guy thing to him. Uh, a brood. Like I'm not surprised for God's sake he played Darth Vader. I'm like, oh yeah, that guy's got some yeah. dark brooding aspects yeah. to him. And it almost kind of feeds into his persona as an actor. I mean, he was doing an interview, I believe, with Terry Gross when promoting Marriage Story, and they played a clip, and he literally walked out of the interview. He's like, no, I can't take this. Like, I, I can't watch myself. He hates himself so much. Apparently, he's such an artist, he can't watch himself, which I. I mean, Stu Gatz would have some issues with that. I know it's a little bit, a little bit. Expensive. Yeah, I was going to say it's a little like, yeah, all right, dude, you're an actor. What do you expect? It's, it's, like, it's like when people write a book and they go, "I hate promoting the book." Well, then what'd you write the book for? Like, of course you wrote the book to promote the book. Like, I get that it's not your favorite part of it, but you have to sell the book, don't you? I'm always just skeptical that the person that, like, in an interview, won't be like, "Oh, I can't watch myself." Is yeah. the same person like in their bed at night is like just on Twitter, like checking all their mentions. <laughs> like, it's like we get it. You want your image. You don't want us to know that you're obsessed with it. So you're going to say that you can never right. watch yourself. Adam Driver secretly a narcissist wants oh, us to believe he is voice. on twitter every night just like oh oh they love right. me they hate me they love me they <laughs> john oliver's me. always loving him he's he loves it he soaks it all up anyways before we get to our friend amin al hassan who's going to join us to talk about teen wolf and our interview with jason Hare, the director a few thoughts here on tom cruise so uh, again dan and friends did not realize i have animus towards him if you're an old school espn radio fan you remember i had a famous rant against him when i was with ryan Rossillo, and it all stems from the fact the documentary going clear which uh, came out a few years ago by alex gibney who's an acclaimed documentarian, and it's all about Scientology. And it's tough to literally distill a two-hour film into, you know, a few sentences. But essentially, Scientology is evil. Like, this is a horrible organization in which they bring people into their clutches, and if you try to leave, they don't let you. To be perfectly blunt, um, it's abusive, it's physically dangerous. Uh, Leah Remini, of course, has talked very publicly about Scientology and how horrible it is. Paul Haggis is hysterical in the film because he's the Academy Award-winning writer, director of Million Dollar Baby. He says at one point when they're teaching you about Scientology, he goes, I thought it was an insanity test. He goes, I thought if you actually believe this, they kick you out for being that stupid. But no, no, they actually believe that L. Ron Hubbard came and there's aliens and thetans and all the rest of it. So when watching this film, Chris, you watch it and you just go, okay, like this is, I had no idea, right? I hear Scientology, like, okay, Josh Revolta, Tom Cruise, whatever. But when you watch this, you go, this is a terrible organization doing irreparable harm to people. Now here's why Tom Cruise earns my Iyer, he's the face of Scientology, and he's in bed with David Miscavige, who's the, you know, the main face of it. So my thing is, if you are an actor who is known for Scientology, who promotes it, celebrates, etc., and you're aware of the fact these horrible things are happening to people, wouldn't you want to take action at some point? Go, hey guys, like I'm all good with Scientology, I believe it works for me, but like, have you seen what's happening to these other people? Like, is that cool? Because you're Tom Cruise, you have so much juice, you could get that taken care of. If you came up tomorrow, go, hey guys, I'm gonna have to leave unless we fix stuff. Uh, Tom, whatever you need, like you've given us millions of dollars like it's all good the documentary kind of posits at one point that maybe he and Travolta are almost blackmailed because part of Scientology is you have to go through this coding process where it's almost like therapy you have to admit your deepest darkest secrets and then they go through it but unlike let's say Catholicism where you go to confession the priest exonerates you here it's like they keep it on file so it's almost like if Cruz and Travolta tried to leave they go oh yeah well we'll leak the fact that John Travolta whatever the hell it is right whatever it's so while watching the film, I said to myself, okay, I can't support this guy anymore because clearly he is aware of all these horrific activities happening to people. He doesn't care. Like, so when I saw him on, on Oprah and he's jumping up and down on the couch, he's just, he's a nut, he's a loon. Now, the correct answer, of course, Chris, becomes if you looked at every single Hollywood actor and director, not all these guys are great people, right? Martin Scorsese had a problem with cocaine. He's been married five times. Uh, Al Pacino had a problem with booze. Robert De Niro was accused by a former assistant of cruel behavior. Like, if you, if you and I went through every... James Franco we talked about, an actor we like a lot. So if you went through every single person, you go, bro, they all have skeletons. It's hard to I play like that game. That, it's hard to play that game. But here's my point. It's kind of like when it comes to, like, in sports with steroids, which baseball you'll appreciate... You know, if you said, well, hang on, they're all using, who knows? I'm like, yeah, but I know Barry Bonds was using. So I, I can't say for certain, but I know he was using. I know Roger Clemens was. And so you get a little more fired up when you're positive about the truth. And the truth is, Tom Cruise is a megalomaniac and a bad dude. So after I watched the documentary, I just said, I'm just not going to watch his movies anymore. So like, people are like, what do you think of the new Mission Impossible? I go, bro, if I watch him, I cannot separate the art from the artist. All I see is the face of villainy. So I have no interest in supporting him. And you might laugh and go, oh, you really think you're making a difference? You're there $13.50? Yeah, I do. I think in my own small way, I can say something by saying, don't support this guy. I'm not supporting him. You shouldn't either. And then someone tweeted back to me. They go, you don't watch Woody Allen? I go, no, I don't. I used to like his films a lot. I love Midnight in Paris 2011. And then all the stories started coming out. I did some reading. I go, you know what? I'm not going to support this guy. I think he molested a child. And I'm like, that's not cool. I watched Allen versus Pharaoh, which is an incredible documentary. And I made that choice. So I get it. 
Uh, I don't watch Kevin Spacey movies anymore. If you want to go watch a Kevin Spacey movie, go for you. Hey, go watch Usual Suspects. He's a great actor. But for me, when it comes to these certain isolated incidents, I can't support these people when I realize that they're just such loons. And Tom Cruise, when he had that rant on that set, I'm like, that's who this guy is. He's a loon. Ask Katie Holmes. She's like, oh, he's nuts. And like the fact people support him. I can't support this guy. He's crazy. Okay, so I'm not going to push back. I mean, I thought we were just going to crush night and day. I mean, I thought that was a really overrated <laughs> flick. But uh, I mean, I, I mean, obviously that. See, I'm one of those people. Like Scientology, like I didn't know that it was like harming people. Like I thought it was just some scam. Like where like it was like invent like that had to do with money and stuff. Like that was. So you just taught me. I mean that. Geez. I mean I didn't realize it was that bad. I I, I gave a version of this rant on the ESPN radio, and the next day I see a facility. He goes, did anyone talk to you? I'm like why? He goes. Uh, they're kind of like a little bit worried. I go, worried about what? Like Scientology coming right. after us? Scientology, what, they're going to come to my house? I'm like, bring it on. I'll, I'll double down this rant right now. Like, go ahead. What are you guys going to do to me? I'm like, I'm speaking the truth. Leah Remini's speaking the truth. Paul Haggis is speaking the truth. Like, there's lots of people out there like, no, don't believe this stuff. These are not good people. And, like, the Church of Scientology, it's a hoax. Like I said, at, at best, it's a pyramid scheme. At worst, it is a horrible place of abuse. And he is kind of overrated. If you just look at his IMDb, like what are the really good movies? I mean, I, the ones to me, I mean, you're the movie guy here. Jerry Maguire is, is like right. a good movie. Good and, movie. And then, you know, Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah, so if someone said to me, okay, how is he as an actor? I'd say, listen, he has undeniable screen presence. Of course, he's a massive movie star. His movies have made billions of dollars. But... I think he's generally playing the same role, that archetype of the cocky young guy, Top Gun, et cetera, which is a version of it in Jerry Maguire. Did I like Jerry Maguire? Of course it is. It's a good movie. It's entertaining. But I don't think he's a particularly talented actor. I don't think he has much range. And I think he's at his best when working with great directors, Stanley Kubrick and Eyes Wide Shut, um, P.T. Anderson and Magnolia, Martin Scorsese, The Color of Money, even Penn Stiller, Tropic Thunder. I think oh, if he's working good. with great directors, then they bring out the best in him. But to your point, otherwise, it's a whole lot of night and day. And I'm like, I, I, I mean, The Last Samurai, like, no, this guy's made some horrible movies along the years and he gets a pass just because he's Tom Cruise and apparently has a nice smile. Man, a 14-year-old, maybe 15-year-old Chris Cody at like 12.30 at night on a Tuesday when he's supposed to be asleep watching Eyes Wide Shut, I felt <laughs> like a bad boy. I was like, man, mommy and daddy would not be happy about this. Remove your clothes. If not, we'll remove them for you. I was at an age where I really didn't even know what was going on in the movie. I just knew that I wasn't turning it off. I was like, uh, uh, this cab, why is, is, like, is he getting charged for this? This guy's just like sitting out here. It's like a creepy vibe. Some people are naked. They're wearing masks. Yeah. I'm like, and now that I'm an adult, I'm like, does this ever happen in real life? Like, are these things real? Like, what's up with these? I thought these invites would I just come in the mail. Right. Are we going to a costume party tonight? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I've, seen, I've seen one of those before. How about the password? The password is Fidelio. Oh, yeah. That was the password. Now we've changed it. Like, oh, oh. No, what do I do now? <laughs> uh, is that the red or the white? When Nicole Kidman tells him about the dream that she had, she's just laughing at the fact she's being ravaged by these two yeah. guys. I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. One of the criticisms of the film, they go, I've never seen New York this quiet. Like Tom Cruise is literally walking on the street. There's no cars there. But in defense of Kubrick, he said, well, it's supposed to be almost like a dream. Like it's this fantastical sequence. It's not New York in reality. It's this alternative version. That seems crazy too when he's going to like get a suit. And he like, the, like boom, 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 oh. and like the late like girl, the daughter. Oh, oh man. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Lily Sobieski is the girl. It's just awful. Like that's his daughter, brawn panties. Like man, yeah. It's just a sick movie. Yeah. But but definitely a great closing line, which is great. But ask Nicole Kidman about Tom Cruise. I'm sure she would show me. <laughs> Not a good dude. There you go, Levitar. Yeah. That's my rant I mean, against Tom Cruise. Good rant. Let's now get to our friend Amin Al Hassan. Does a fantastic job, cinephile. There's also been stories about a beef. So let's address that. Let's start right there. So there's been stories about an alleged feud here, maybe not even a feud, a rivalry, something of such between cinephile and cinephobe. So here to quench that, or perhaps stir that debate further, Amin El Hassan, representing cinephobe, is kind of to join us right now. Amin, it is great to see you, my man. Um, here's the thing I don't understand. We, have, we both have movie podcasts here, uh, ostensibly with Levitard and Metalark, but how come you are not under the banner as I am? Can we fix this? Like, we should be growing together. Can you explain this to me? Well, first of all, I feel like we have to start with a very quintessential movie line like, we're not so different, you and I. You got to start with something like that to set the table. No, you know, it's it's one of those things where it's going to happen eventually. It just, you know, there's all sorts of uh, you know, hoops that have to be jumped through and T's that need to be crossed and I's dotted. Yeah, all that good stuff. But judging by social media, you have a rabid following who is looking to take me down. Every 
chance I see your people are like ascertain, ascertain. Like, hey, Cody, what's with the ascertain? What is this? Well, let me just say, first of all, Adnan was our first guest ever on Cinephobe. <laughs> That's for the, true. <laughs> the April Fool's episode where we did uh, we did a good movie for a change, an alleged good movie. I do not like The Departed, uh, yeah. but we did that. And we had Adnan on. Uh, we actually it was fun because Adnan started it like it was cinephile. He had we had the right. cinephile open and everything, and then <laughs> oh April Fool's, haha, and we got into the episode. But to be honest with you, the person who originated this concept of a feud is none other than Chris Cody. Everything was fine. We had a nice, you know, working relationship with Adnan and respectful. And then here comes Chris Cody, the hotshot new producer. And he said, hey, time to stir things up in town. He starts this. this, uh, this I beat. have a lot of pressure from the uh, the metal art people for downloads. So I'm like, look, I, I just figure it can't hurt. Right. I was like, if we it gets a little friction here, I just felt like it, I don't know. I was just trying to produce, man. Chris Cody's new nickname now, the fire starter. He just wants to stir it up yeah. here, get things going, get sides against each other. Back to my appearance on Cinephobe, it means right, he texted me and goes, hey, I do this podcast where we talk about movies and just rip them. I'm like, okay, he goes, uh, which of these movies do you like more, The Shape of Water or The Departed? And truth be told, I, I, I already knew well, you're going to be crushing me for either choice. So The Shape of Water, I feel, is a tougher movie to defend. Because I'm like, okay, well, there's a fish man and he's in love. So I'm like, okay, I love the film, but I'm like, that's going to be harder for me to defend. The Departed, I feel like I can defend. You guys still get in some body blows on me, but yeah. I feel like I was able to go the distance. Whereas The Shape of Water, if you don't like it, you're going to hate that movie. Oh, you mean Splash 2? Is that the movie we're talking about? That, I, I, like, it's, it's not unlike when I watch Avatar. That this is Fern Gully. Why is no one noticing that this has already been done a long time ago? Get all this credit. Oh, get out of here with that. Well, I love that you're here not to trash the movie, but I believe to praise the movie, or at the very least, talk of a film that you have a fondness for. That's what Cody tells me, which is Teen Wolf. So I know you are a great dad, as am I. And Congrats. one of my kids says to me, I love werewolves. He's just, he's all about werewolves these days. I'm like, okay, great. So I'm like, uh, I don't want to play werewolves in London around the house, Warren Zevon. I don't want to watch like American Werewolf in London. And I go, Teen Wolf. Teen Wolf is probably a kid's movie that we can all watch. So I got to be honest, I did not get through the film, and I loved it as a kid, but I, I got through maybe 10 minutes, and then I was kind of in and out. How about the opening scene, which is what I did watch again? For those who are unaware of what Teen Wolf is, Michael J. Fox plays a basketball player who is a very average, mediocre talent, eventually becomes a werewolf and starts dominating, not only on the court, but also with women. Bill Simmons' great book, The Big Book of Basketball, which I know Amin has read, he's got a section in there which he talks about the final montage. If you extrapolate Teen Wolf's numbers, he, in that final show, he has like 48 points, 12 mm -hmm. blocks, 17 assists. Like, it's amazing how good he is. But let's start with just the beginning and the concept. If someone said to you, I'm going to make a film starring Michael J. Fox, who was the biggest movie star on the planet at that time, coming off Back to the Future, playing a werewolf, what would your reaction be? Well, I mean, at the time, and I remember when that movie came out and I watched it, I believe I watched it in the theater, if not definitely on cable VHS, as soon as yeah. that, on VHS. So, um, my reaction would be like, oh, great. My, yeah, Michael J. Fox it, coming off of Back to the Future, which was a mega uh, st uh, super uh, blockbuster, coming off of Family Ties, which was one of the number one TV shows on, on air at the time. He can do no wrong, and it sounds fun and, and harmless, relatively harmless. And I remember watching it, and I loved that movie. And I watched it a million times as a kid and as a teenager. And then I remember watching it like maybe... <laughs> Chris one was just like seven, eight years ago. And I, I just got a completely different read on Teen Wolf. By the way, beyond this different read that I got on Teen Wolf, also watching it now, some of the language. Oh, it's a, it's, this is not a kid's movie at exactly. all. And that was what one of my wife and I said, well, hang on, there's one scene where they got to go like in a closet and start making it. I go, this is yeah. not age appropriate well, for a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old. Well, I mean, yeah, that, like the seven seconds in heaven or seven minutes in heaven or whatever, that, that's like one thing. And it gets a little rough because he turns into a werewolf midway through. But there, there's, a, there's a part where Scott Howard is trying to reveal to his best friend Styles this deep down secret, hey, I'm a werewolf. And he says, Styles, I have something to tell you. And Styles looks at him and says, oh, my God, you're not going to tell me you're a F word, are you? Yes. And it's one of those things where it's jarring because obviously we've progressed as a society and that kind of language isn't acceptable. But it's also jarring because I thought this was a yeah. kid's movie. So even back then, if I right. had my kid with me watching the movie and, and now I got to, what's happening here? 
Right, we're tossing gay slurs in 86 like it's just common language. Yeah. Just to get those kids laughing, you know? What's better for a nine-year-old? There are a couple of gay slurs going, huh? That's good comedy. <laughs> I, just the casting alone. How about the first scene? So, like, their team sucks. They're down, like, 86 mm-hmm. to 12. How about the fat guy on the team? Like, every one of these Chubbs. 80s comedies had to have a fat tubs. Or chubs, mm-hmm. sorry. Chubs, chubs, chubs yeah. yeah. Like, 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 his locker is disgusting. Like, how is that mm-hmm. guy even on the team? Like, everyone He's needs he- some muscle, but come on. He's eating candy bars in the middle of the game. I must admit, that's what I imagine yes. Chris Cody was like in high school. Star base, star baseball player gets up to the at bat, and before he kind of, you know how they, you know, Babe Ruth points out to the eye, calls a shot. Chris is like pulling out a Babe Ruth. I, I, a baby I would be Ruth known to steal a Reese's Pieces from the concession stand. You know, a little, little minute eating yeah. snack. Get your energy going, get those <laughs> engines roaring. But this guy, Tubbs, like, he better be good in the blocks. Like, Cody at least delivered in the box. This guy is like, how is he even on the team? And he then hit the shot. The, he he did had a big shot. shot. At the, yeah. Spoiler alert. Uh, how about, um, let's, let's talk about Styles, the sidekick. Every one of these 80s comedies has to have a sidekick, right? Okay. And so they cast Styles, and I'm like, he's almost like a character of a best friend. With the glasses and the hair and the pants. I'm like, who is this guy? What I'll tell you who he is. I'll tell you who he is. He's Stugatz. You want to know what Stugatz was in high school? It was Styles. Stugatz is absolutely the guy that if his best friend became a werewolf, he'd have merch the next day. Right? He's coming through with T-shirts and tank tops and glasses and everything. He's like, hey, man. Wolf out. How about the love interest? Is a real Archie Veronica thing here, right? The brunette mm. who's a little bit more down to earth, yeah. little kind of like, eh. You know, that's when he should be in love with. And then you got the hot blonde with the curls. We're like, all right, here's what I'm talking about. I always thought the brunette was hotter. Like I thought, I thought they were trying to force that on us that like because she's blonde, this is the real hot one. But it really wasn't what she wasn't. She wasn't hot physically. What she was was she had the allure, the aura of popular girl in school, right? right. Who's who's dating Mick, who may or may not be thirty years old, right? <laughs> Everyone on that team, that red team, Mick and Lemonade and the rest of them. They're not in high school. These guys are nowhere near their teenage years. They're they're full on right. mortgages and and college tuition. <laughs> which think about it, Michael J. Fox, when he did Back to the Future, which was eighty five, he was twenty eight, playing eighteen year old Marty McFly. Mm-hmm. This is a year later. He's twenty nine years old playing Teen Wolf and still trying to pass off as seventeen. It's insane. Hell, hell of an actor though. See that? Yeah. He did, Great well, actor. Here's one thing, makes here's something about Michael J. Fox: underrated athlete. Um, like he, like in the Back to the Future scenes, you can see when he's running around, like this guy's got some speed to him. Was a pretty good hockey player, again, growing up in Canada. And I think on the court, again, he's 5'4", buck 20, but pretty good handle. You're the basketball guy. Tell me, to, if you were scouting me, you'd go, you know what? So he's scrappy at least. So, okay, so, yes, he is, he is, he does a good job of scurrying. That's what he, <laughs> scurrying. He scurries when he runs. <laughs> yes. He is fast, but he doesn't look athletic. He looks like... No. Again, how I imagine Stugatz in high school, <laughs> yes. playing lacrosse or whatever. I imagine Stugatz would scurry everywhere. Scurry, yes, like a mouse. It, yeah. And because he is diminutive, right, as a yes. as a person. The other thing <laughs> about it, though, as far as his basketball skills, no. It, I was pretty found fairly remarkable that almost everybody in this movie, other than the wolf, looked like they'd never played basketball before. <laughs> Even the extras, they couldn't get regular people to. Just dribble, pass ahead, and all that. Now, the guy who played the wolf, I don't know who was in that wolf costume, but that guy, hey, Great. hell of a player. Hell of a ball player. He, hell of he an dunked. athlete. It was amazing. The fact the wolf dunks. I'm like, Windmills yes. and between the legs, behind, around the back. You know, I was, I was impressed by whoever that guy was. Single best scene in the movie that's still, well, two great scenes that still hold up. One, when the wolf is on the top of the van and he goes, these waves are mine and they're playing Surfing USA and there he is just car surfing and the other great one which my kids loved and I loved as he's turning into the wolf and doesn't know what's happening he's got these fangs and his nails and all of a sudden he hears the knock on the bathroom door and it's his father also a white hair, white beard he goes, jeez Louise I mean, great scene well I mean the whole thing was like he's afraid how is he going to tell his dad his dad's like open the door and he says dad I'm, I'm really busy right here and the father puts on the father voice Scott Michael Howard now you open this door this gosh darn minute and he's like oh my god alright dad you asked for it and he opens the door and you can tell he's trying to scare his dad like oh see what I am and the dad just kind of staring at him and like tough night huh oh, yeah we're all werewolves in this family uh, I'll throw in a third one the first time he has kind of wolf undertones when they go to buy the beer from the from the liquor store oh, he's and like growls. Yeah, yeah. give me a keg of beer. 
and the old man shits himself and gets the gets him the beer. Look, it's funny. I lo- I loved this movie. It's I had very fond memories of watching this movie. I could recite many of the scenes. But Adnan, I have to tell you, I have this whole thing. This was probably one of my Chris. This was probably the first time I said something on Levitard show that wasn't basketball related that made people it's, it's, sit it's up. It's why I wanted you to come on and talk about Team Wolf. My theory is that Teen Wolf is all this one big racist allegory of white people fetishizing what it's like to be black, <laughs> without with, but with also the cinematic, the movie, uh, what are they called, the Hayes Code uh, ending yes, of the Hayes Code. Yeah, you, very you've good. got you've, you've got to nail down that hey, being black is bad, and being white is still the best thing ever. So what oh. do you get? You get a guy who's like, okay, uh, I'm not great with the ladies. I'm, I'm struggling in basketball. Becomes a werewolf. What is he doing all of a sudden? Now, great basketball, but selfish, hot dog. Everything is very flash, showboat, right? Teammates hate playing with him, right? Now, what else is happening? He's real popular in school, walks down the hallway. Everyone's high-fiving him. The black guy high-fives him. They start breakdancing. He becomes an amazing dancer, <laughs> right? Amazing dancer, great athlete. Now, what, what's next? The ladies, all oh, those black people, they get all the girls, right? Yeah. And now the popular girl wants to be with him. Meanwhile, Mick, Mick, everything that Mick says, super loaded racist language. Like, for instance, I cut your mama in the, in the hen coop or whatever, and I shot her with my shotgun. And he gives his ex-girlfriend a hard time for going out with that thing and all that. He goes to the dance, right? He does the dance. Everyone's like, oh, what a great new dance he's invented. We'll do it, too. But... Remember these black people, they're so passionate. They get in a fight. He gets in a fight, tears up the guy's shirt, and the girl says, oh, my God, you're an animal. And now she realizes he's not worth being with. Everyone has forsaken him. He comes out to play the big game as what? White guy. And what happens because of the Hayes Code? They end up winning, playing the right way, passing to each other, sharing. He's no longer selfish. And as a result, becomes successful and, of course, the uh, original girl, Boof, the, the brunette, now she comes back to him because she was the virtuous white woman that never fell for the sin of the dark flesh, like, oh, Pam, like Pam or whatever her name was. Was it Pam? Was it? It's Pam. Pam fell for it, right? She fell for the siren song of that sweet, sweet interracial jungle fever. That's why she's forsaken. She's a loser at the end of this movie. I think you nailed it, Cody. I mean, yeah. that, I'm never watching Team Wolf the same. I'm like that. I think it's it basically he's Russell Westbrook. That's Team Wolf. That's Kyrie Irving. Like he's nailed it. That's exactly yep. what this is. It's yep. a fable and it's racist. It's super racist. And then they made a second one, and that's where it really gets great. The second How about one. Jason Bateman, Teen Wolf Two. Yeah. First movie. First movie. And do you know why that was his first movie ever? No. Jason, because the producer of Teen Wolf Two. Can you can you name the producer? No, it's not Michael Bay, Jerry Bruckheimer, some one of those guys. Oh, okay. it's, you got to come closer to home. Uh, closer Simpson, to home. No. Uh, Michael J. Pro- Fox, no, it's not. Produced by Kent Bateman. Oh, wow, yes. Kent is like, let my get my kid in here, okay. <laughs> get my kid in this movie and in this Oh, I hate it. Noted Uber producer and father of Jason Bateman. Yeah, and Justin Bateman. Yeah, of course. We're going to try to get Justine Bateman actually on the podcast. Just, a new Justine Bateman. So. Who, who, who was on what TV show? Of course, Mallory, Family Ties. There you go. Full circle. Yeah, it is full circle. We brought it full circle. It's amazing. Teen Wolf is racist. We still love Michael J. Fox. The movie is not as yes. good as it once was when we were kids. Uh, make sure you check out Cinephobe. Where can people see Cinephobe? Apple Podcasts, wherever you get their podcasts. Where, wherever you get podcasts. Uh, we are in the middle of martial arts slash fighting month. We've done blood sport. We've done Roadhouse. We, I think the episode, by the time this drops, the episode that'll be out is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze. So make sure to check us out. I love it. Support Cinephobe. My buddy Rick Passmore, huge fan of Roadhouse, so he's definitely going to listen to that. Oh. Cody, you have a final thought? I love it. I'm just, I was, I wanted him to bring that to the end. I was like, I was midway through. I was like, man, are we not going to get to this? Am I going to have to get in there? Yeah. But he, he's a pro. No, no, I, I believe your, your text yeah. was, we're going to bring him in on. He's a big team. Well, wolf I just, guy. I didn't want to ruin yeah. it. Big team wolf I didn't want to ruin it. Racist <laughs> team wolf. He, look, look. He, I, we should, you should rephrase it. He has passionate thoughts about Teen Wolf as a racist allegory. Okay, great. We'll have him on. Rabble rouser. Rabble rouser. By the way, I just want to point out real quick, uh, uh, with regard to Roadhouse, we also had a special guest episode with Stugatz oh. on that because Stugatz, literally the last time he was on Cinephobe, he said, whenever you guys do Roadhouse, you have to call me. So Stugatz oh. came over and we, we did Roadhouse. So check out all of those episodes, again, wherever you get podcasts. 
Awesome. I mean, Al Hassan, of course, did a question. Well, I just have one question because we did Bloodsport, and this might be one of our best episodes we've ever done. And uh, Adnan, I submitted to the group, and we all kind of agreed on this, quite possibly the greatest movie villain of all time is Bolo Young. Between Double Impact and Bloodsport, there's, I mean, there are not too many people who play the villain as well as he does. If you had to name, I guess, career movie villains, we're not saying that one character, but just right. guy that plays the bad guy. Who would Dennis you have Hopper, on your Mount Rushmore? Dennis Hopper, a great movie villain. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Christopher Walken, a great movie villain. Like Those are the two that popped to my head, especially because when they're in true romance together, you go, yeah. my God, these two all-time baddies going head-to-head. Malkovich? Is Malkovich, Malkovich is a, Malkovich yeah. in the line of fire is a great movie yeah. villain. It's always weird when you see those guys trying to be good guys. Like Christopher Walken as like a doting father and catch me if you can. You go, no, no, dude, you're you're a horrible person. <laughs> well, he's <laughs> I'm a doting for a second. He was a, do- a doting father in Pulp Fiction as well, right? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Look at this watch. The watch. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, El Hassan crushing it. Uh, thanks so much for the time, dude. We'll talk soon. No problem. Thanks, guys. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Well, listen, thanks again to me, Neil Hassan. He was fantastic. Uh, go watch Teen Wolf. I know you'll be scarred forever by the ideas of a racist allegory. Uh, thankfully, no issues of race now as we talk to Jason Hare. He's got a new documentary. It's currently available on Netflix. It's all about space. If you're into space, you're going to love this. And also, we spoke about The Last Dance, Michael Jordan, his relationship with him, and Andre the Giant. The idea, where did it first stem from? Enjoy Jason Hare. Well, a real pleasure bringing in Jason Hare, who is a fantastic documentarian. He has done The Last Dance, Andre the Giant, 24-7, and now SpaceX Inspiration for Mission to Space, the first Netflix documentary series to cover an event in near real time. It's available on Netflix. Jason, thanks so much for the time today. You got it, man. Happy to be here. So, uh, listen, I have friends who are like avid space junkies. You know, my, my buddy Mike Kiss, my brother's big into space and stuff. I, I'm not like one of these space junkies, and yet I was totally immersed in it. I found it fascinating, particularly because just your style. You know, um, there's no voiceover. It's literally just showing these people very, uh, you know, cinema verite style, them and their surroundings, how they're interacting with others. But I really found the strongest part of it was seeing how the family members are reacting. And I thought, I believe the name is Amy Menon. Her character, she's like a technical advisor, almost like a conduit between those who are in space and the families explaining what's happening in real time. I thought she was fabulous specifically. What can you tell me about her and her role? Uh, Anna Menon is her name and, and she she is fantastic. She's also the wife of Anil Menon who's in the doc as well. He, he is the, the doctor, um, the flight surgeon they, they call him. He's the doctor, the, the lead medical director at SpaceX and, and uh, she is the person who every morning while the astronauts were, were in space, she would have a briefing at 11 a.m and tell them what their loved ones had been through in the previous 24 hours. She had showed them video and pictures of them in space. She was the one who organized all of the calls that the astronauts made down to Earth to, to speak to their loved ones, sometimes via video, which was incredible to witness. Um, so, yeah, she, she's one of many people at SpaceX who I had the pleasure to get to know. It's, it's really an extraordinary group. Yeah, I love just the little details. The fact that they put the 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 stuffed dog yeah. out just to prove that they're no longer in gravity. If you can tell that story, I think that'll entice people to want to watch. Yeah, there's a thing that I learned about. I didn't know this either. Being someone who is as kind of um, non-space nerdish as, as you are, I didn't know about any of these things. But there's a thing called a zero gravity indicator, a zero G indicator. It's kind of a tradition in space flights. And it's always a surprise as to what that indicator is going to be. It could be a coin. 
It can be a picture that floats up, but it's to show people back down on Earth that they are actually in zero G up in space. And this time it was a stuffed dog that is a replica of an actual dog at St. Jude. It was a therapy dog for the kids. And I believe his name is Puggles. There's Huck and Puggles. <laughs> and they made a stuffed animal a replica of this dog. And, and he's the one who, if the kids are having a rough day, if they've just gone through chemo, the dog will come in and literally hop up on the bed and lie down next to the kid. They have the dog go in and lie on the MRI and CAT scan tables to show the kids that it's not scary and it's safe. Um, so that was something really special and personal to Haley Arsenault, who is a cancer survivor, who's now a physician's assistant at St. Jude. She wanted to be the one to bring that up. Yeah, St. Jude's does obviously does phenomenal work. And seeing like the closing sections where the astronauts are talking to patients. Yeah. And like particularly one guy was talking about like, hey, I, I think I had a chance to gamble. I'm a huge Eagles fan. Yeah. I'll put some money down on the Eagles. Yeah. Like that. I thought those moments were really, really special. I'm glad you included those. Yeah. The, the, the call down to the kids was that was Haley's number one priority when she was up there. She wanted to be able to, you know, Inspiration 4 is the name of the mission uh, and the name of the show, Countdown Inspiration 4 Mission Space. But Inspiration 4 is the name of it because it's the four people going up. And really, the reason why Haley agreed to do this, to, to quite literally risk her life to go to space, was to inspire her patients and kids everywhere, kids, kids who are suffering from cancer, to show them that anything is possible. She had bone cancer when she was a kid. She lost a part of her leg. They had to put a prosthesis in her leg. And it was not clear if she was going to live or die when she was young. And now she's not only living, but she's thriving and she's an astronaut. And she really wanted to show these kids that anything is possible, even when you're in the, the, the throes of suffering such a horrific illness. So to witness that call with those kids, and those kids are adorable. Um, she also speaks Spanish, so she had some Spanish-speaking kids ask her questions in Spanish. It was really emotional to witness. And it's emotional to watch. It's amazing when you watch it. Uh, it just makes you appreciate how amazing Earth is and space is. Like, I was like, just some of those images, and I thought it was it was beautiful how you captured it, just kind of lingering on it, you know, just images yeah. out of a telescope. And just when you consider the Earth, like, kind of like almost like 2001, right? There's moments, and obviously in Kubrick's film, where you're just kind of just soaking it all in. How important was that to you to have people almost like a kind of like a sensory experience, right? Imagine just feeling the space around you. Yeah, hugely important. And just to kind of let those shots breathe because it's impossible to convey what they saw up there, but they did a great job at capturing it themselves. It was a really cool moment. When, when they came back down, they had to go for medical testing immediately. And we followed them with our cameras. And um, I got a knock on my window on my rental car as I was pulling up to the building where they were getting testing done. And they had just come, they were in space two hours before this, one hour before this. And someone handed me a pouch with the four cell phones that they had in space. And, and there are these iPhones that we immediately got to go through and look at this footage. And no human being has ever seen 4K footage shot from that high up before. So we were the first people ever to see this footage. It was really, it was jaw-dropping. I'll never forget it. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I, I just imagine scrolling through their phones. What were they checking in their downtime? Okay, NFL scores? <laughs> what, were they, what, were they, what were these guys serving? These were dedicated. <laughs> these were phones that, that were given to them that were dedicated just to capture images up there for us. Right. So they became our directors, producers, and cinematographers because at that point we had no way to, to oversee anything. I just had to kind of give them a pep talk and, you know, to just remind them to, to shoot it horizontally, shoot it landscape, and, and if you're not posting this on Instagram, we need to make a movie out of this. They, we hope to get a few minutes, honestly, that, that would be usable. And they shot 82 hours for us. So the only drawback wow. was that we had to go sift through all that footage, but it's a lot of the people who were on The Last Dance uh, with me, so we, we know how to go through an incredible amount of yeah. footage in a short period of time. No question. One more on this, and I do want to ask you a little bit about The Last Dance. Obviously, Emmy Award winner for that incredible project. Um, my biggest aversion, I think, to space would just be the claustrophobia. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just, I couldn't imagine just being in those situations. How about for you? If I said to you, what aspect of space, now that you've been through this experience, yeah. do you think would be the toughest to manifest? I would have said just the danger involved. I mean, I before this project, I had never been on a roller coaster. I am averse to all of those things. I don't know why people... <laughs> seek a lot of those kind of thrills. I don't need to put my life on the line or to have my nervous system, my caveman brain think that my life is on the line. I'm fine. I'd rather just sit down with a beer and watch a game. I'm good. <laughs> I went on a fighter jet. Um, I had the opportunity to go up at a fighter jet in August when they did their G-force training. And I couldn't say no to it because it was quite literally a once in a lifetime opportunity. And that kind of changed my outlook on what I would be willing to do. 
I agree with you, though, that if you took the claustrophobia out of it, I think I would be willing to go through a launch and a reentry. But the claustrophobia aspect of it, I want no part of. I don't like elevators, let alone being trapped <laughs> in space for three days in, a, in an SUV. Like, no thanks. <laughs> Just the thought is giving me chills. Yeah. Uh, we're, talking, we're talking to Jason Hare, the very talented director. I want everyone to check out Countdown Inspiration for Mission to Space, the first Netflix documentary series to cover an event in near real time. It's available on Netflix. The Last Dance, just an extraordinary job. I mean, listen, every single content creator right now is trying to make a last dance. Hey, can we do a last dance about, you know, I love Roger Federer. Can we do a last dance on Federer? All right, great. Can we do a last dance on the, the Oilers of the 80s? Sure. Can we do a last dance in the 90s Yankees? But one of the great attractions in what you did was you had footage which nobody else had. Like the, the behind the scenes yeah. footage, them on the bus, them busting each other's chops. Like that was amazing. Did you feel like it was a gold mine? There was a treasure trove once you could get that. And obviously very skilled interesting that with game footage with interviews with present day interviews that specific footage behind the scenes to me felt like it was so important yeah i mean absolutely that, that that's another moment just like the one with the with the iphones in, in space the moment when i went over to nba entertainment in secaucus and um sat in a room for three hours when i was you know quote unquote deciding whether or not i was going to do the project which i, I would have you know i would have done this thing for free in retrospect i didn't tell anyone that at the time but um, part of the process of my applying for the job and, and interviewing with people over there was that I got to take a look at some of the footage and, and sitting in this room and looking at footage that only a handful of people had ever seen before. And also at the time, you know, stars today are ubiquitous and LeBron's having Taco Tuesday at his house. Um, we know what, <laughs> you know, what Kawhi Leonard's basement looks like. You know a lot more about people now, about these athletes now, than you did back in the 80s and 90s when I was a kid watching these guys. So to watch Michael Jordan pull up in his car and close the door and walk into a practice facility was riveting because you had never seen that. You pretty much only see them in uniform when they're between the lines playing the game. So any kind of footage of them hanging out and being human beings, as pedestrian as, as it sounds on paper, for me was enthralling. And that that's that's when I knew that this thing was going to be something special. Yeah, and now it's part of the vernacular. Now Aaron Rodgers' final season in Green Bay, everyone's like, oh, it's a last dance scenario. <laughs> now because of your doc, it's become shorthand for what everyone says. I'm not the biggest Jordan fan, Jason. Maybe part of that is I grew up a Knicks fan. He was always torching the Knicks. Yep. Um, obviously, I, I admire his talent, incredible athlete, but I just always thought he was, wasn't a great teammate, arrogant guy. I hated his Hall of Fame speech. I thought he came across as really petty. But I thought what was really great with The Last Dance was you didn't have to like Jordan to appreciate the filmmaking or the storytelling. The stuff that I enjoyed the most, the stuff on Pippen I thought was fascinating, his backstory, um, you know, the, the stuff with Phil Jackson was really cool, Steve Kerr. Like, that to me was key. It was, I think it was most impressive with The Last Dance. You did not have to like the central character to appreciate what an achievement that you made. Yeah, that, that was one of my favorite aspects of the project was that this was not a Michael Jordan documentary. You know, people call it a Michael Jordan doc in shorthand now in retrospect, but it really was about this group of people, this dysfunctional family that came together to achieve some extraordinary things uh, back in the 90s. So to have the time to devote, you know, essentially an entire episode to Dennis Rodman and the, the better part of an episode to Scottie Pippen. Uh, Michael's episode was one, but Scottie was always two. Episode three was about Dennis. Episode four was about Phil. We went way into Steve Kerr's story, as you mentioned. So those are the yes. kind of things that, you know, when they first came to me with this project, the first thing that I thought of was I can't wait to tell Steve Kerr's story because there was a fascinating profile on him in the New York Times a few years back. I think it was two years before we started production in 2018. And my first thought was, oh, I can't wait to do that. We should, we should do a full episode on Steve Kerr. So that was really, really an incredible opportunity to get 10 hours to really dive into this extraordinary cast of characters. Yeah. And I did like the fact you brought up, listen, some criticism that Jordan faced. He answered it. The whole Republicans buy sneakers, too. Mm -hmm. He's like, obviously, it was a joke. It was a throwaway comment. People took it seriously. I did donate money to a Democratic candidate. Fine. I wasn't waving my arms about it, but I thought some of the stuff was unfair. Mm -hmm. So I thought, ultimately, though, he comes across as he is. Like, <laughs> like he was an assassin who wanted to destroy these guys. And when he's mocking Clyde Drexler, yeah. whoever the, the new star was, trying to take him down, like, that is who Jordan is. I think is. that's I mean, exactly who he that. is. He's, right, he's very unapologetic yes. about who he is. I, I don't personally care for him but he's definitely unapologetic which yep. i do appreciate and he doesn't care that you don't care for him that, that's what's that's what's fascinating <laughs> about him is he truly does not give a shit what you think of him he lives his life as yep. he lives his life and he answers to no one because he's michael right. jordan but he is it yep. was so telling to me that that the one time he became really emotional was in talking about his process and talking about how important it is to him 
um, to adhere to that process. Uh, and that is what, yeah. and that there's no shortcuts. Nobody can deny the talent on the court, the competitive fire, the desire, all that stuff is remarkable. Pathological. I, the poor guy. I wouldn't want to live yeah, in that but, brain. Right. I was about to say, I almost feel like now it's a little sad. Like he can never match the <laughs> high of that, right? As an owner, hey, he's had mixed results, obviously, but he can never get back to the adrenaline rush that he had when he was just torturing. Well, I teams. think that's the golf, um, right? That's that's golfing yes. for him. You're never going to shoot an 18 on 18 holes. And all, now he's an avid fisherman. He's decided to take on the Atlantic Ocean because there's no other <laughs> opponent left. <laughs> Nobody else left the torch. Yeah. Um, Andre the Giant, unbelievable. I, I, I just tell me how it first came about because I'm like, I, I don't know what a clamoring there was for an Andre the Giant documentary, and yet everyone I talked to was like, oh my god, have you seen the Andre the Giant documentary? Like, fantastic stuff there. Where did that come about? Uh, Bill Simmons. So Bill and I had worked together. I had done a few thirty for thirties while he was still at ESPN. So we knew each other there, and I did a short film for for um, uh, what was his old uh, Grantland? Yeah, at Grantland. Um, he had the clamoring for it, and he always knew what what potential the story had. I said no initially. I said, you got the wrong guy, because I don't care about wrestling. And he kind of, I said, I want to tell the story of Andre Rusimov, not Andre the Giant. I want to tell the story of what it's like to to go around, navigate a world that's not made for, for people your size, and what it feels like to be that person. Uh, and he was, I, I was just afraid there was going to be the typical sports doc, we're going to be covering his, you know, his WWE championship in 1984 as if it was like a real championship when we all know that this is scripted entertainment. So once we were on board uh, on the same wavelength there, I mean, he, he had no illusions about doing it any differently than I wanted to do it. We both were on the same wavelength. Then it was like, all right, let's do it. We were off and running. And I had worked at HBO for years before that. So it was cool to, to come back. It was, it was a cool kind of full circle moment. Yeah, it's really cool. I, I love all your work. Countdown, inspiration for Mission to Space. We're talking to Jason Hare, Emmy Award winner, of course, The Last Dance, Onto the Giant. And seriously, uh, can we do a Last Dance on Federer? I know tennis may be a mm. tough sell here in the country. Worldwide, though, Jason, there's a market for this. People love it. I know there is. I love Federer, too. And um, the other doc that I don't know why has not been made, because it's one of my favorite books. I'm not a big tennis guy. But Andre Agassi's Agassi book. It's incredible. Incredible book. I, I recommend that to people who are not even sports fans at all. Just an incredible story. I don't know why that doc has not been made yet, but I would certainly watch it. And, you know, at the time I would make it if I could. Yeah, you're right. It's so honest and unvarnished yeah. and just bare. I mean, the way his father treated him yeah. and the hairpiece and the drugs. I mean, it's it's, it's incredible. Yeah. It's incredible read. You're right. You don't have to be a tennis fan to appreciate it. Uh, Jason Hare, make sure you check out all of his work, particularly this documentary on Netflix, Countdown Inspiration for Mission to Space. Really appreciate the time, man. Be well. All right, man. You too. All right, thanks once again for listening to Cinephile. As always, go to Apple Podcasts where you can subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, next week on the podcast, Dune. I know, God, everyone's waiting for Dune. I can't wait. Denis Villeneuve, Canadian director, Timothee Chalamet, Oscar Isaac, amazing cast. And go check that out this weekend. Uh, so I look forward to that. Also, Jeffrey Lyons coming up in the weeks ahead. Ben Lyons' father, famed film critic and author of a new book called Hemingway and Me, continuing my love of Hemingway. So look forward to that in the weeks ahead here on Cinephile. Thanks so much for checking us out. Until then, we'll see you at the movies.